as we continue to talk through and preach through and study together through the entire hymn book that God has inspired and given to the nation of Israel and really to all of us in all generations since. We're going to look at Psalm 45 this afternoon, this evening, and you see the title there in your outline. This is the royal wedding of King Messiah. I guess that sort of tells you where I'm headed with the title for where we are going to go this evening. Psalm 45, follow with me from the title. Now, remember, when you look at the title of Psalm 45, it says, For the choir director, according to the Shoshanim. In our English, that's in the title of Psalm 45. It actually should be the conclusion to Psalm 44. The title begins with a maskeel of the sons of Korah. It is a song of love. Verse 1. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor, in your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things, for your arrows are sharp and the peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your lord, Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. And then the conclusion, for the choir director. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to the exposition of your word. Lord, we have read your word, but we need help interpreting your word. We want to make sure that we are understanding your word rightly and faithfully and accurately. And so, Father, we pray that you would shine the light upon your Son by the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we would be awed, that we would adore, and that we would obey 
King Jesus even more because of what we have heard tonight in Psalm 45. In Jesus' name, amen. The very first institution that God ever gave to man, even pre-fall, even before sin entered the world in Genesis 3, is the covenant bond and the life commitment of marriage between one man and one woman. By God's design, marriage and the marriage covenant point to a greater marriage, a, a more lasting marriage, an ultimate marriage, one that will never, ever, ever pass away. And that is the heavenly marriage of Christ and his church, his bride. Now, the Bible teaches in Malachi chapter 2 that marriage is a covenant. It is a covenant. It is an unbreakable covenant. We read in the book of Ephesians 5 that marriage, by God's very own design, though real and wonderful and glorious, is always meant to be a picture to something more, to something greater. We know in Genesis chapter 2 that marriage was designed by God to be a covenant of companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. Therefore, I will make a helper suitable for him. And all of that is great and wonderful and true. And yet here we are tonight in Psalm 45 at a picture in this hymn that God has given. It's a picture of a, of a marriage, but it's a royal marriage. It's a kingly marriage. It's the marriage of the king. Speaking of kings... Let me talk for just a moment about Jesus, the ultimate king. Colossians 1 tells us that he is the supreme king over heaven and earth. We read in Revelation 19 that Jesus is the sovereign king and he purchased a bride for himself, a people for his very own possession. He is Lord and king over all. We learn in Luke chapter 14 that as the king, Jesus demands and he calls for a full allegiance and obedience and submission and love from all of his subjects. He is the king over the nations, Revelation 15. He is the king over all kings, Revelation 19. And he's the king of the Jews, Matthew 2, verse 2. In this psalm tonight, what I want to propose to you is that we behold Messiah Jesus as the perfect king. We behold the glorious Savior, the kingly Messiah, as the all-glorious one who is worthy of worship. Now, before we get into the interpretation of the psalm and, and then I preach it, have you ever wondered who put the psalms together? Like, why is Psalm 1, Psalm 1? Why is Psalm 2 after that? And why Psalm 3 after that? And I don't think they're just random, let me show you. In Psalm 42 and 43, you'll remember these are individual laments, right? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in despair? Hope in God, right? Last week, Psalm 44, a national lament. Oh, Lord, you have rejected us. We are humiliated by you. I mean, they are just lamenting the national calamity that has happened. At the very end of Psalm 44, the only place to go is to the covenant love of God, the covenant love of God. I don't think that it's 
just random that Psalm 45 is the very next psalm. Well, where do you go when you are individually in despair? Psalm 42, 43. Where do you go when your nation is in turmoil? Psalm 44. Here's the answer. Psalm 45. You have to go to King Messiah. Psalm 46. We'll get there next week. Is all of, Well, Psalm 45 is the king's wedding. Psalm 46 is the king's stronghold. He is our refuge. Psalm 47 is the king's global reign. Psalm 48 is the king's city in Jerusalem. What's the point? When you are downcast, when you are mourning, when you are unsure of the future, what is God's biblical counsel? Look to the kingship of God. Look to the kingship of God. So... In God's amazing plan, for the next four weeks, we are going to dwell on the kingship of our God. Tonight, we could talk about the introduction to the psalm. It is a maskeel to give wisdom, written by the sons of Korah, and it is a song of love. At the very end of the psalm, the conclusion, it's for the choir director. It's meant to be publicly sung. Now, let me tell you where I'm coming from with my interpretation of the psalm. I believe that we have to always get to the authorial intent when we're studying the Bible. What did the original author mean by what he wrote? Here's the trick. The capital A, divine author, and the lowercase a, human author, are always one of the same. I'm convinced that the Old Testament writer whose hand was carried by the Holy Spirit is writing the entire psalm about the coming Messiah. I believe that in this song, the psalmist is describing such an awesome, such a divine, such a majestic man to come in the royal image of an ancient Near Eastern wedding. And and we could go on and on, and you've got a box in your outline there that shows you how The psalm has been interpreted through the ages. It's amazing to me how both Jews and Christians have seen this as an entirely messianic psalm. If I could say it maybe in a different way, I believe that Psalm 45, the biblical writer is writing as if he sees the divine Messiah. And he's, he's writing about the divine person and he's celebrating the Messiah as if he's standing right before him as he's writing it. Psalm 45 is often listed with Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 22 and 110, entirely messianic. All of it refers to Messiah. I believe that this is the psalmist writing in the future or writing about the future Messiah with the image of a royal wedding. That's the picture that we have this evening. By the way, if we're talking about an ancient Near Eastern wedding, can I tell you about weddings in the ancient world, in particular in the Jewish culture, because it's really, really important. There are three stages, which you see in your outline there. Remember, when you read the Bible, you can't just sort of bring the Bible into our modern times. You have to transport yourself back into biblical times, right? 
you need to understand the Bible in the context and culture in which it was written. So first, there was the betrothal period. Betrothal, it's, it's a formal act when, when parents would arrange a legal procedure before witnesses. It would be so weighty that the man and the woman would actually be called husband and wife in the betrothal period. It's like a glorified engagement on steroids. It, it was engaged, but you were, you were legally married. You were bound by one another, even you, though you haven't come together physically yet. Second, related to that, there's the dowry. The dowry is the normal feature of the betrothal when the husband's family would give a gift to the family of the bride. It would be a pledge. It would be a, it would be a seal. It would be a promise. It would be a token of unbreakable commitment. Maybe guys put an engagement ring on a lady uh, nowadays, but the dowry was much more significant and more binding at that time. And then third, after the betrothal and the dowry, then you finally have the wedding ceremony. And that's when the friends and the, and the attendants of the bride, they all gather at the bride's home. And, and after the husband and the groom has prepared his home, he finally goes through a grand procession through the streets of a city and he fetches the woman, he fetches his bride and he brings her to his house and they enjoy a wonderful ceremony together. And that is the beginning of their formal marriage. The betrothal and the dowry and the ceremony. That was not uncommon in the ancient world. That was the Jewish custom, but, but very, very common in the ancient customs. <laughs> When we read the Gospels, we need to understand, and when we read all of God's Word, we need to understand the culture in which this marriage took place. When we get engaged nowadays, there are similarities, but it's not as binding as the betrothal period was at that time. With all of that sort of wedding imagery... With all of that illustration in our mind, let's look at Psalm 45, because what I want to do this evening is I want you to see your royal Messiah. I want you to see your royal Messiah in three majestically unrivaled truths. Again, I don't think this is pointing to a king of old. I think it's far too majestic for that. I think this meaning of the psalm is all forward-looking to the future King Messiah. So who who is this Messiah? Who is this great king? Well, number one, he's the king. Number two, he is God. And number three, he is Lord. Let's walk through it briefly together. Look at verse one. Notice kind of like an editorial introduction. Look at verse one. My heart overflows with a good theme. If I could tell you what the Hebrew says in verse 1, my heart is giddy. My heart is giddy. That's the idea. My, my heart is just bubbling forth. It's a stir with thrill. We have a lot of little boys and girls that are really excited, and they jump up and down for a lot of reasons with excitement and joy. That's kind of the idea of the psalmist. Let me write from my heart of a good theme with a giddy kind of a thrill. The heart is bubbling because I think the psalmist has a revelation from God about a coming Messiah. And this wedding is unlike 
any earthly wedding. This picture of the grand bridegroom is far more glorious than anything in this world. His heart is bubbling forth with joy. Verse 1 ends, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Verse 2, notice how the hymn begins after this editorial introduction. Verse 2, you are fairer. We all love the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. That's where it comes from. All fairest beauty belongs to Christ. He is more beautiful, more attractive, more fair. Luke 4 says that grace just dripped from his lips. He was so wonderful. Look at how it continues in verse 2. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Our Messiah, the psalmist says, is more beautiful, more handsome, more attractive than any. None can compare with him. Think of that hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. One of the verses, all fairest beauty, heavenly and earthly, wondrously Jesus is found in thee. None can be nearer, none can be fairer than thou my Savior art to me. How? How is this bridegroom, this Messiah, how is he fairer? How is he more attractive, more handsome? In his person, in all of his gospel work, in all of his fullness, in all the blessings that he gives to his people, all the promises that he gives to his people, he is beautiful. We see that this Messiah is king. We see it in his beauty But look at verse 3. We see it also in his deity. This is probably the reason why this psalm can't be referring to a human king. Verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, O warrior, in your splendor and in your majesty. Splendor and majesty here is a couplet of words that nearly exclusively refers only to God in the Bible. Only God has this kind of majesty, and only God has this kind of splendor. First Chronicles 16, 27, splendor and majesty are with God. I think the psalmist is being a prophet, looking ahead to the coming Messiah, and he says, you, you are full of splendor and full of majesty, almighty one. And in verse 4 and 5, he's going to talk about the kingship of Messiah in his victory. Look at verse 4. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. Peoples fall under you. And your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. I mean, this is language that I think Revelation 19 with the coming of Jesus is deliberately alluding to. He has arrows that are sharp. All of his enemies lie crushed beneath his feet. He is riding on victoriously. He is the great victorious Messiah King. Now, what's the point of all of that? The point is this. You got to make sure you're on the king's side. 
You got to surrender to this. Good, attractive, beautiful, handsome, lovely, majestic, divine king. Maybe we might hear from the psalmist an application if he were to say, you need to trust in the Messiah King or you'll be crushed by this Messiah King. He's powerful, but he's personal. He's a glorious king, but he's a good king. He is splendid. He rules over all, but he's tender toward all of his own subjects. As the king, we as his people are either a friend or unbelievers are foes. We are either the subjects of God and his kingdom, or we are enemies of God who will face the wrath of this king. He has all authority. What is the psalmist doing? He is so overwhelmed, giddy in his heart, describing Messiah in the picture of a royal wedding. Our Messiah is king. If you hear anything tonight and you need to be reminded of something, maybe you're tempted to worry, you're tempted to be anxious, you don't know what tomorrow holds in your life or around the globe, remember your Savior, the bridegroom, is the king over all. Number two, not only is he king, the psalmist tells us that our royal Messiah is majestically unrivaled because he is God. He is God. Now, notice in verse 6, your throne, O God. Notice in verse 7, in the middle of the verse, therefore, God, your God has anointed you. You know what I find really fascinating about this? There is even a distinctiveness and a plurality within the persons of the Godhead here. Whoever the Messiah is, he's God, but he's also anointed by God. Kind of like John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, distinctiveness, but the Word is God, identity. The Messiah is God, he's called God, but he's also distinct from the Father. There is one God in a plurality of persons right here in Psalm 45. I acknowledge there are some kings in the ancient Near Eastern world that were often called gods. Psalms Psalms 82 says, I said that you are gods. But the language here is so lofty and profound and divine and unrivaled. I think it can only refer to the one who is himself God. It's almost like Psalm 45 brings us to John 1, verses 1 to 18. Who can fit the description but God? Only God fits this description. Well, who is he? Notice in verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This great bridegroom king is eternal. His throne is established from of old, Psalm 93 says. We read in verse 6 that the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom. That means that our Messiah King always has a just verdict. He always does perfect order. He always upholds total uprightness. And he always loves pure righteousness. 
and verse 7. Look at verse 7. Do you see in your Bible how we read about this coming Messiah? You have loved righteousness and you hated wickedness. Your Messiah loves what is right, as defined by God. And he vehemently hates all evil. He vehemently hates all sin. And he shows his holy deity in that. And I think we as his people, as we have been changed and transformed by this Messiah, we will emulate his character as we will love what is good and we will hate what is evil. Of course, you know, and we've looked at Hebrews chapter 1, it quotes this pointing to Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. Verse 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. I mean, here is our Savior. Here is the Messiah. And all of the joy is his as God has anointed him as Messiah. Hebrews. Hebrews 1 applies this directly to Jesus. He is God. He is divine. And he is the Lord. Not only is our God eternal and upright and holy and glad, but look at verse 8 and 9. He's also unrivaled. This is fascinating to me. All of your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. If you do a word study on myrrhs, myrrh and aloes, you're going to have one other time in the Bible where these two come together. John chapter 19. It's almost as if the psalmist is prophetically looking ahead to the Messiah's death and burial when Nicodemus comes with all of the spices and all of the myrrh and all of the aloes, a hundred pounds worth, John tells us. And it's almost as if the psalmist is acknowledging our royal bridegroom is going to suffer. He's going to suffer and die and be buried. Verse 8, out of his ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made him glad. King's daughters, verse 9, are among the noble ladies. What's the point of all of the language? What's the point? This Messiah, this great bridegroom, the coming majestic king, he is God, master, sovereign, divine. And because he is Christian. He has all victory. Because he is divine, he alone can save the worst of sinners. Because he is divine, he can protect his people from all harm. Because he is divine, he has a global plan that he will accomplish in all the ages. And because this King Messiah is God, he gives peace and forgiveness to all who trust in him. To all who trust in him. If you're not trusting in this King Messiah, here's, here's God. 
Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Bow before Him. Worship Him. The psalmist is looking ahead and he's picturing Messiah in the image of a, of a royal bridegroom, of, of a royal wedding. And he acknowledges the splendor and the beauty of Messiah because he is king, number one, because he is God, number two, number three, in your outline, he's Lord. He is Lord. Now I think verses 10 to 15, without going into all the technical detail, I think the psalmist is intentionally thinking one scripture in the back of his mind. Genesis 2, 24. A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two of them will become one flesh. This is a picture of Messiah as the Lord. He is the bridegroom. You can almost imagine in these coming verses here, the the bride is in her chamber and she's getting ready and preparing herself for the bridegroom's arrival and how, how the bridegroom, the coming Messiah, is longing for the bride and he's desiring his bride. Look at verse 10. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear which I think is a picture from the psalmist to God's people. Forget your people. Forget your father's house. That's Genesis 2. Leave father and mother. Forget them. Why? Leave. Leave your former. But now, verse 11, then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. The language in Hebrew, bow down and worship him. You, d- you don't worship your human bridegroom. You only worship the Lord. The language of Psalm 11 is the same language of Psalm 95. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is not just bowing down before a human husband. This is someone being called to bow down before the heavenly Lord in worship. And I think the call is for us, all of the people of God, come and look at the Messiah and worship him and believe in him and bow before him for he is your Lord. He must be obeyed. He must be submitted to. I find it amazing that in verse 11, I think it's a picture that the Messiah actually desires the beauty of his bride. He desires the beauty and the godliness of his own people. And then in verses 13 to 15, essentially what you have is you have the wedding procession in the picture here. The king's daughter is all glorious within. The clothing is interwoven with gold. Verse 14, she will be led to the Messiah king. Verse 15, they will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter the king's palace. And verse 17, at the very end, all the peoples will give thanks to our God. I think this psalm is a very poetic picture of the psalmist looking ahead to Messiah in language that far, far surpasses what any human could fulfill. This is divine. This is divine. 
The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14 that the unbelievers will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and He is King of kings. And all those who are with Him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. If I could give a brief word of application here before we draw this to a close. So what? So we we look at a psalm about Messiah as a bridegroom, Messiah as a king, Messiah as God, Messiah as Lord. So what? Here's the application for us. We ought to love the king. He's desirous. He's altogether lovely. He is perfect. He is all good bound in him. Love the king. Number two, we ought to look for the king. The bridegroom will return for his own people. And we ought to obey our king. We ought to obey him. We as the people of God, we as the church, we are the bride of Christ. We must obey him. He calls for it. Duty demands it. We must submit to him. And we must hold fast to the king. I want you very quickly before we draw this to a close to turn with me to one scripture, Revelation chapter 19. As you're going to Revelation 19... I want to tell you about another scripture, but go to Revelation 19. Remember John 14, when Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come and take you to be with me, so that where I am, you may be also. That language in John 14 is oozing with bridegroom language, bridegroom imagery. Jesus is the Messiah, the bridegroom, and he's going to come again for his bride to take us home to be with him. Look at the wedding in Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. Skip down to verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Right now, we are betrothed to the bridegroom. And there's a dowry. What's the seal? The Holy Spirit. That's the dowry. We have a pledge. This wedding will certainly come. We have been betrothed to Christ, the bridegroom. He is our Messiah. We have the Spirit of God as the dowry living in us. He's the seal. He is the pledge never to be taken. Now we rejoice, Revelation tells us, why the marriage has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, the... Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So the question before we close is this. If this coming Messiah 
that the psalmist has talked about is really the bridegroom and he has come to purchase a bride. The question is, have you come to believe in him? Did the bridegroom lay down his life for you? Have you come to put all of your trust in him? Has he given you the Holy Spirit as the dowry, as the pledge, as the seal, guaranteeing your future wedding with him? Be reminded of the great hope that we have in our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus. We ought to worship him and praise him and thank him for he is the Messiah that Psalm 45 talks about.